everyone, and welcome back to our podcast.、Um, we have a really special interview today that we've been waiting to have for a long time, and it's finally happening. So, yay!、Uh, so, I'm Anna, your co host. I'm with Milan. Hello, everyone. Oh, sorry. I'm with Felina as well. Hello, hello. And、uh, one of our guests today is Dr. Jennifer Love, who is the head of our department right now of chemistry. Before that, she,、uh, she was a student, like all of us, obtaining her bachelor's degree from Allegheny College in 94 and her PhD from Stanford University in 2000. She did postdoctoral research at the California Institute of Technology and began her independent career at UBC in the Department of Chemistry. Currently, she's the president of the Chemical Society for Canada and has served as the director of wards from 2019 to 2021. She's also currently the chair of the editorial board of Chemical Society Reviews and was an associate editor for Catalysis Science and Technology. She also serves on several editorial boards,、um, including、uh, Inorganic Chemistry from ACS, Catalysis Science and Technology from RSC. And then、uh, right now, her research is、uh, in inorganic, organometallic, and organic chemistry with focus on mechanistic analysis. She's won a number of awards, including the AstraZeneca Canada Award in 2008, and more recently, the Intellicin Pharma Excellence Award in 2018, and the Fellow of the Chemical Institute of Canada in 2021. And,、uh, So, welcome to the show. <laughs> welcome, welcome. And wait for it, we've got another special guest with us as well. And that guest is a graduate student in Professor Love's lab right now, and his name is Juan Rueda. He was born in Bogota, Colombia, and he got his bachelor's in chemistry at Los Andes University in the same city. And then he started his PhD in September 2017 under the supervision of Professor Love at the University of British Columbia. Now he's a visiting graduate student at the University of Calgary. And fun fact people have told him that he has the accent of Sofia Vergara, which makes him very, very proud.、Mm-hmm. And his preferred pronouns are he and him, he or him. Yeah, so welcome, Juan, as well.、Uh, we're hoping to kind of capture a, a little bit of a, a discussion between you and your supervisor as you guys have.、Uh, A better relationship than we have. The three of us are in awe that our head of department is here with us.、Um, but we could get started. So, as I mentioned before, before being a head of department or having all your awards, you're a grad student just like us.、Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your grad studies were like, especially at Stanford and especially as you're、um, one of those rare women in organic chemistry? <laughs> Yeah, that's a fantastic question.、Um, so, when I was a grad student at one point, there, the, I was in Paul Wender's group, which was about 40 people. And just down the hall was Barry Trost's group with about 50 people. So, 40 or sorry, 90 synthetic organic chemists on the same hall. And at one point, there were three women out of 90. It was a bit of a locker room mentality.、Um, and one of the things that I really noticed is that. It was only a few people who did that, who had that behavior. And most of the men didn't want to have that environment 
just like the women didn't. And this is one of the things, as I think we we discussed, that I've always maintained anything that's done to improve equity for any group of people improves equity for all. Um, but it was a challenge. I, I was uh, I started when I was 21. Um, and the other people in my lab, we had three main synthetic labs in the group. And I was the only woman in my lab. And the next youngest person was probably three or four years older. And the difference between a 21-year-old and a 25-year-old is pretty significant, right? And, um, and so there, there was a real, I'd say, power imbalance. And the lewd jokes, they would pass them off. So it would be like Selena would say some some horrible thing to me and then and she'd say Anna over to you and then Anna would have the same lewd joke and then Anna would pass it to Millen and Millen would have the same lewd joke and and it this was going on every day, every day, multiple times a day. I would go home in the evenings and I would cry. <laughs> and um, I'm very, very glad that I had a good group of friends who were understanding, one of whom um, is uh, Dr. Pierre Kennepel, who you might know now is my husband. Um, and honestly, if it wasn't for them, I couldn't have survived. In a big in a big group like that, I didn't want to go to my boss because I thought there's again it's this power differential, and it's hard. It's hard to go to your boss, and then I think Juan Manuel can can speak to that for some of the things that that he's experienced and. Um, I eventually said to one of my fellow grad students that I was thinking about quitting and he stopped in his tracks and he said, why? And I said, well, do you know what you do to me every day? Mm. And he had absolutely no idea. And it stopped. He talked to everybody else and it stopped and we talked through it. And he's now actually a very close friend. And I think my take home message from that is to be able to try to have open communication with people. People, he was 30, he should have known, mm -hmm. right? He really should have known. And people need to take responsibility for their own behaviors. And um, those were, I wouldn't call those microaggressions, those were macroaggressions. Mm -hmm. um, and, but at the same point in time, he was willing to listen and to learn. And to me, that says a lot about people. And, and as someone who's now in education, we're at a university, as long as people are willing to learn, I think it's okay to make mistakes, you just have to own them. And he's apologized, other people apologized. I also realized that a lot of people were acting out because they were so stressed out. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't excuse their behavior at all, but I think it explains it. And I was the I was the, the easy target. I was a young woman. And so I was the easy target. I was really green behind the ears, had to ask a lot of, of questions. I also started to figure out who would ridicule me when I asked questions. And often it was because they didn't know the answer. <laughs> um, and it was really their insecurity if they, mm -hmm. and it's a safety risk, right? I, I was asking safety questions. But I also um, found people who were um, willing to uh, just very matter of fact, answer questions, answer questions that I had repeatedly and help me out, not ridicule me. And um, one in particular um, I was in the Wender group and one was in the Trost group. 
they both happened to, to know each other from <clears throat> their undergraduate studies. They were both graduate students, um, had, both had come from Korea, and they had done military service. So by the time they started graduate school, they were a few years older um, and so more mature, very secure in their own knowledge, didn't feel the need to put someone down. And they're now both uh, faculty members, one in the US, one in Korea. Um, and so I, I really credit them with being very patient with me and answering all of my, my questions and, um, and uh, it helped a lot with respect to training. So when you talk to the people who was nice, you said some of them were like, okay, they apologize and they understood what they did. So my question is like, even though they understood that and being nice to you, did you feel any difference? Because I feel like if I if someone is not behaving nice to me and if I talk back to them and say, hey, you are doing this to me and it's hurting me. And even though if they are not behaving after that nice, I feel there's a gap, there's a difference because you are now trying to be nice because I told you that it hurts me, but I don't feel the same relationship as the person who was nice before. So did you also feel that difference from them being maybe being over nice to you like that? Uh, not from most people, but for sure for some, because I think they started to be afraid that I would go complain to the boss. So that that's not a very... Um, that's not a good response. That's a cover your backside <laughs> response. Yes, <laughs> to use exactly. euphemism. Um, and, and so that that's someone who hasn't really learned that what they did was inappropriate. Um, but I, I did find that most people were pretty shocked at how their behavior was affecting me. Again, they should have known, mm -hmm. right? If, if you could be remotely objective, they, they should have known, but there are definitely people who, who didn't accept it, but they, they just went with the situation. So the group that, accept, that accepted that they had made a mistake, um, those are people I'm still friends with and still in contact with. And this was from the 80s, or sorry, the 90s, mid-90s. So after that, uh, this year boss kind of answered to those questions, address these uh, issues? I never really raised them with him. Oh. And it was the environment in, especially with a very large group in the nineties, it was not really something you would bring up with the supervisor. Although to be honest, I'm sure that if I did bring it up with him, that he would have actually acted on my behalf, but it was, and I think this is a very common thing for students that it's really hard because of that power differential. There's an age and a generational differential. He was probably the same age I am now. Um, and I'm trying to think about a 21-year-old me talking to a 49-year-old me. And it's, I can understand why 21-year-old me wouldn't have done that. Yeah, I mean, the, the power that it took for you to speak up is something that... Um, you know, I try to inspire my fellow grad students to do. It must have not been easy. And you said it took a, a few months or yeah. years. Yeah. And when you finally did, was it like, did you, like, how did you do it? Like, kind of, please stop bothering me or like, hey, this I, I, sucks. We were going for coffee and yeah. I just said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of quitting. And, yeah. and, and the, the guy I was walking over with really stopped in his tracks and said, well, why? And, and so it wasn't, it, it was neither, it was neither meek nor aggressive. Mm -hmm. 
And it was just in the moment I'd had it. And I, I, I thought, well, at the very least, if I leave, I need them to know that it's not me just giving up, mm-hmm. that they created an environment that was not professional. And I have to say, as department head, one of the things that I, I think is really lacking in graduate curriculum and, and um, Justin McCallum and, and I and many others are working on and, and, and within the faculty of science, so the new dean of science is very keen to do this, is have more professional development training. And rather than focus on so much content in courses, which is things, things that you can pick up in seminars and group meetings and and, you know, ad hoc discussions with friends and and problem sets um, have more professional development. Because what I had realized from that time and also from from when I was a postdoc, that you have a very narrow age range for the most part in an academic setting, because you don't have somebody my age working on the bench next to you like you would have in industry. And generally, the supervisor um, is not, I think in your case, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. I think Jeff's back in the lab now. Um, but uh, um, the, typically, the supervisor in an academic setting is not in the lab. Um, and so the day-to-day operations, if, if a 30-year-old learned how to behave from the 25 to 30-year-olds who treated them in a particular way, that gets replicated. And no one's ever stopped that behavior. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were working, say, in a pharmaceutical industry, doing the exact same chemistry that I was doing during grad school, uh, the 50-year-old at the bench next to me would have put down any inappropriate behavior and, and there's HR procedures. And so we don't train people in an environment. And, and, um, and I've heard this from people in industry that oftentimes people coming from grad school or a postdoc, they, they need to learn professional behavior Mm -hmm. and practical jokes are not funny. Mm -hmm. And if you get people in a stressed out situation, working long hours, um, trying to get feedback from peers, I think is extremely difficult um, because you, you never know, is that person giving objective feedback or are they trying to put you down because they think that's going to raise them up? And so I think for students, it's really difficult to try to get objective feedback, which is why a supervisory committee becomes really important because it's not just your supervisor, it's other people um, with expertise um, who can, because when at one point I thought I'm, I'm doing a terrible job and my supervisor was like, no, no, I thought you did really well in that. Mm-hmm. Um, because after my equivalent of a candidacy exam, he asked me to grade myself. And I think I gave myself a D or something mm-hmm. like that. And he, kind of, he, he, was, he would sit and he would stare at you for a while and it'd be really quiet. And then he said, well, I was thinking more A minus. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and th- so that actually helped raise my, um, uh, my comfort level, my, my confidence. So I think building confidence, um, there's so it's really, uh, that's still a, a challenge. And one of the things that I think is still most disappointing to me is hearing that some of the same things that I encountered 25 years ago still happen. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's how can it be a quarter of a century later with all we know now that these things still happen? 
and that some people think that that's appropriate behavior. So we really are looking into it as a department between the restructuring of the faculty science and and with, because of budget cuts and and the pandemic, it slowed everything down. But we're that's the direction that we're going in. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's a lot to take in. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's, it's amazing. I I just like I completely agree with you. When you are hitting your rock bottom, which happens every now and then when yeah. you're in grad school, but hearing some positive points from your supervisor, someone you can trust, mm-hmm. you know, can boost you up so much. I've been there, still go through it, but you know, hearing something positive coming out of you know a person you can trust, right, mm-hmm. is is super critical. So so yeah, no. And, and also, like, all the stories that you've shared just remind me of Picture Scientist documentary. Yes. Yeah. It's literally, yeah. whatever you said, I that picture was going mm-hmm. in my head right now. Mm-hmm. That, that it's, it's sad that it still happens. But, <clears throat> but can you comment on how much, like, if you have to rate, right? You know, I'm pretty, I, I hope it has decreased the impact or how it happens, the work culture, even with UBC, UFC, like, you know, everything. Do you think, have you seen any changes? I think that the people your age are are much more likely to stand up for yourselves than people my age, that we were very much told, um, and th- this goes for cis straight white men as well, that everyone was told not to rock the boat, that what you get, and this is, here's something that's that, that still needs to change, you're really relying on a single supervisor's letter of recommendation mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And that means that you don't want to be seen as a complainer, but you can't put up with an unprofessional setting that is going to mean that you're going to make mistakes. There's actually, it's not only your personal safety, but if you're uh, an experimental chemist, you, you can, if your mind's not in the game, you're going to make experimental mistakes that could be a danger to you, other people, an instrument, or just a plain old waste of time that you have to repeat an experiment. Um, so I do think that uh, I, I see a difference um, with the generation of graduate students now who are much more likely to stand up for their rights than people my age were. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to uh, kind of shift this conversation towards uh, something that's really dear to all of us and that's you know mental health Mm -hmm. so what you're talking about your experience sounds like imposter syndrome a little well it wasn't just a syndrome it was actually happening you were made to feel like an actively like an imposter which I don't even know how you continue to be productive in the lab coming through this but a lot of times it's a lot more subtle Mm -hmm. the things that break us uh, whether like right now, you know, post pandemic, a lot of people are burnt out Absolutely. And, and still just trying to keep going at the same speed that they were before and failing to do so. And yeah. it's just like a downward vortex. Uh, same with people uh, suffering like mental health issues. And this is something that maybe I could bring Juan into the conversation with. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I know that Juan took uh, several months off for like mental health issues. And this is due to like a clinical depression, uh, but there's a lot of us in grad studies that are going through these little microaggressions, you know, women, as we mentioned, but also international students, people being discriminated against for a variety of reasons. I wanted to, um, to kind of breach that subject with you of mental health and uh, how important it is for you. Um, and like also in the supervisor-student relationships, I know when Juan approached you with his uh, issues you responded really positively to that. I don't know if you want to add something to that, Juan. 
Yeah, no, I have so many things to add about like all these discussions so far and just before like touching the mental health topic and Jennifer saying, oh, it has been a quarter of a century and we are still facing the same problems that she faced in grad school. It's, it's, it's impressive to actually hear those kind of stuff. I remember when I was doing my undergrad in Colombia and I have a, a friend of mine which was uh, one year senior and yeah, my it's actually interesting how you translate that from Spanish, but I would call it like my woman friend because she wasn't my girlfriend. And she just said to me, like, uh, she just have a tutorial in organic chemistry in which basically uh, at the age eight in front of everybody, which was maybe, maybe 25 people, this exercise seems to be very simple. Uh, let a woman do it. And she was the only woman in that class in that moment. So she stand up and resolved the exercise because it was simple and consequently a woman can do it. Uh, and then I thought that, well, maybe this is a Colombian thing. Maybe our institutions didn't invest enough money in oversight or in challenging sexism or that kind of stuff. And then I arrived to Canada and I talked with my uh, friends, female grad students, and I see that they are treated significantly different from their supervisors, like right now in this moment, even if that supervisor is also a woman, which is, which is, shows to me like how structural uh, the EDI problems are still like even those persons know about EDI and talk about EDI but it's so easy to fall into the pattern that you were raised into the system that is already established that you do it with your own students sometimes so it's it's an interesting point now going back to your mental health um, situation yeah there was a moment in 2018 that uh, I had this combination of seasonal affective disorder. I was born and raised in Colombia, a country that has like 12 hours of of light, of daylight, every single day of the year, basically. And then I was facing maybe what was my first harsh fall slash winter. Um, I had a research project in my PhD that wasn't working uh, very well. My mother was facing like some problems that I wasn't really um, able to help at the moment, and I just feel like I was trying a lot of things, I wasn't succeeding in anything. So I was constantly thinking like, what is the purpose of me doing here, Um, whatever. And it just got to a point that it seemed like I I cannot live my my life like this. I'm not being able to eat, I'm not being able to sleep properly. Um, I'm not even be able to cook. Um, I was, I don't know, eating pizza six or seven days a week because I really wasn't even wanted to go to the grocery store. Uh, I was becoming a ghost of who I was in the past, literally. And that I think that a lot of people that had faced depression will say that, like, you don't recognize the person in that moment as yourself, but it just seems like, I don't know, like a demonic possession. Like, you are not the person that you are right now. In that moment... Um, I remember that I, I talked with other grad students that were very supportive. Uh, I remember one of them took to Jennifer because she understood at the moment that I maybe, uh, when you are depressed, it's really hard to talk about being depressed because uh, the first time you feel about judgment, which is one thing, and the second one is that social interactions requires a huge load of energy when you are depressed because like, you feel like you have to hide it, and hiding it requires like and sort of mental amount of energy. And that it was not like just related to talking to my supervisor. I remember, I don't know, my mom calling me from Colombia and it was like having to do a tremendous effort, like to laugh and to tell jokes and like to be the person that I normally am. 
Again, I remember that the answer of Jennifer in the moment, like, oh, crap, I'm really sorry that you feel like this. Uh, take all the time off that you need. Um, she talked with another professor that was uh, knowledgeable about like mental health resources and what can be done in order like to have uh, meaningful and efficient access to those. And I got the help that I needed. It took me a while to recover and I have like a little bit of a refill at the end of 2019 and then there was COVID, but uh, I just want to say, and I don't say it because I still wait for a very flashy recommendation letter from you, Jennifer, which I I still hope to get eventually. Uh, beyond that, like uh, the way that you deal with this make the process far less difficult and took a burden out of my shoulders. If I have to carry the burden of a supervisor that was less understanding, I will have dropped my PhD that will have derailed my whole plans to the future, and it will have been way worse. So I, I do want to thank you for that. And I also would like to start a discussion of how do you actually um, become understanding of these subjects or how can you be supportive as a supervisor as you were with me in general, like if you have any advice to other people, for example. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm so delighted that you're feeling better, right? That's first and foremost. And, and that there's trust, right? That, that I think that... As a supervisor, if you can convey that trust that someone can actually come talk to you and when they need to. Um, and we try to have open conversations about that to, to build that trust. And, and so I'm really appreciative uh, of that. And I think, you know, I, I, I had a very, very bad childhood. Um, and you can, you can go two ways. You can replicate your childhood and continue a cycle or you can, I mean, then it's really not binary. There's a, it's a spectrum, but uh, two extremes. And the other is to, to, to go the empathetic route and to say, I don't, I recognize in myself that I don't, there, there are social inequities. There's, there's systemic. I'm glad you brought up uh, what my mother, the systemic um, barriers, the, the individual day to day is, is one thing, but the systemic barriers are, are the big challenge. Um, but, uh, not wanting people to have to go through what I went through and to not get help when you need it. And, and it's kind of a corny phrase, but to pay it forward. Um, and, and just, just be empathetic. Everybody's situation is different. And, you know, we talk about equity versus equality. I really try as a supervisor to find what works for the particular student. And it's not a one size fits all strategy. You know, we really try to tailor projects, degree of supervision, number of meetings to individual needs. Um, and also recognizing in myself, I have ups and downs. I sent my group a message on Slack last Friday where I said, I hit a wall. And I, you know, and it's been a tough few years um, for everybody. But for me, and this is one of the later questions, walking into the, the role that I walked into was not what I signed on for. Um, because basically day one, they said, oh, well, the lab space that we promised you, you're not going to get. Um, we're restructuring and centralizing everything. So the financial and administrative support that we promised you, you're not going to keep um, because I walked into a very functioning main office, but then was taken away pretty much immediately. And then the pandemic happened. Um, and so just for me personally, um, it, it's been a real struggle, but as department head, 
I see it in faculty, staff, and students. And, and the staff was where, at least through the restructuring and the budget cuts from the province, that's where you can cut. And seeing a staff member get laid off who is such an exceptional, exceptional person, a human being and at their job, um, and, and then the, the workload effect on the staff in particular, and then all faculty, all students, all staff are so far beyond capacity and feeling like there's nothing I can do to help people. So there's, I wouldn't, it's not hopelessness, but it's just, it's disappointment. Um, but one thing that I, I'll say that, that I keep with me. So my postdoc supervisor, Bob Grubbs, when I, um, finished my postdoc, he said to me that the postdoc is the last time you can ever give 100% to anything because as a grad student, you're teaching and doing research and you have to write a thesis. A postdoc is a really empowering time because you, you don't, you could just leave tomorrow. It's not like you're not going to get a degree. You don't get a degree with postdoc. Um, and so you, you have a lot more control over the situation, but he, he said, this is the last time that you're only doing your own research and you're going to have to balance things. You're going to have to prioritize things and you're going to have to learn how to disappoint people. And that's true. And it's still extremely hard to do, but, um, it was some of the best advice that I've ever gotten that you cannot do it all. You cannot keep going at the same pace that you were pre-pandemic. Um, and I think for everybody, and I think this ties in with imposter syndrome too, that you, you have to define your own excellence, not what somebody else defines as excellence for you. And so, you know, getting a column done in that day and, and getting, you know, three comp, you know, three spots separated and isolated that's a heck of an achievement oftentimes. And that could be your most excellent day and somebody else gets a Jack's paper. Well, good for them. But what you need in that moment was to get that success with that column and not comparing yourselves to other people and having outside activities, people who are, this has actually been one of the hardest things with the move is getting to know people who are not part of UFC. Um, because you, you, a lot of the time you couldn't go out, we couldn't meet people. Mm. Um, and so I think that's probably true for the students who moved, uh, like Manuel moved with us from uh, UBC, that uh, you're really, you have a very narrow um, uh, group of people, but having outside activities, trying to get exercise, fresh air, um, getting into the outdoors, getting into the mountains. Um, I think that really resets people. I think a lot of times people don't want to take a break because you come back to a million emails and all these tasks, but um, it, when you and it have to take long enough of, of a break that the guilt goes away and then you can truly relax and then you can come back and hit the ground running, hopefully. And I find at least for me, I get the best ideas when I'm in that, I've actually been able to relax phase. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's amazing. I just have talked a lot in previous podcasts about the art of saying no. Yeah. And, and you made a lot of stress on it as well. I think it's, it's really, really, really important to know when to say no. Mm -hmm. you, you can't do it all. That's, yeah. that's the harsh truth as a human being. You can't. Um, it's, uh, 
it's really amazing that you are so open-minded to, and it sounds like it's because you had this harsh experience when you were younger, whereas a lot of our professors come from very privileged. However, Pierre comes from a relatively privileged upbringing yeah. and he is extremely empathetic and, yeah. and giving of time. And um, I'm, I find myself extremely lucky to have found him. So I, I think people who are thoughtful um, mm -hmm. about if you're in this job for your own success and your own glory, I don't think that's good. Mm -hmm. You have to be in it for your students mm -hmm. and your students' success. Pardon me. I think where the problem groups come in is not is thinking of, you know, you're going to go in the lab and you're going to do this thing so that I can get my next grant or next award, as opposed to what can we do to build your CV and get papers out for you and um, and have you take some people don't want their students to take time off for professional development training, but unlike 50 years ago, I'm not training people to replace me, right? I'm, I'm not technically every supervisor has a, a career of a certain length. There are only a certain number of academic positions. The vast majority of people go into industry. And so how can we get people to have CVs to open the doors for their own careers. Um, so I don't know that you have to have come from a path of, um, of, of difficulty to, to actually be empathetic. I'd like to change the talk a little bit to about your uh, leadership role. Mm -hmm. So I know you are a good leader and you have a lot of leadership roles held and now holding. So how it started like becoming a leader and involving in leadership activities, when did it start? Like it started from graduate school or since you are a small girl, you started that? Probably from a young age, I would imagine. Um, it's, I, I, I enjoy challenges. So I think that's part of what would draw me to opportunities for leadership. Um, and uh, certainly as a, as a grad or sorry, as an undergraduate in different clubs and be becoming a president of a club and because you think you can make a difference. Um, in graduate school, I, I was reliable and I could solve problems and think outside the box to use a, again, an overused phrase. Um, and so even in my second year in a large group with lots of postdocs, um, my supervisor put me as the safety chair for the, the group. And so I had to tell postdocs who thought I was nothing that, no, you're doing that wrong. You've got to stop it. And the fact that my supervisor made it very clear that when he went away, I had the authority uh, in the lab, even as a 22-year-old, 23-year-old, <laughs> Um, his confidence in me actually helped me develop. And, and I think that was really important. Um, and then I, I think always, I, I keep using these old fashioned phrases, putting your money where your mouth is. If you're going to complain about something or you see inequity somewhere, try to do something about it. Um, and as I, I am now in a very, very privileged position. So I have tenure, I'm a full professor, um, my funding situation is stable, um, I have recognitions, I need to be the, the, the voice for people who don't 
have the the same position of power and privilege that I have. And there's sometimes on social media when I, I, I will just call BS on something and, and um, I think, oh, I'm not going to get invited to many parties at that conference, mm-hmm. am I? And then the direct messages start coming in from trainees, from students, uh, from undergrad, grad, postdocs, uh, young faculty, young people in industry saying, thank you. That was driving me absolutely bananas, but I didn't think that I could stand up to that person because they're in such a position of power and and they've got 25,000 followers on Twitter or something like that. And, um, I, there are a few of us, uh, Kathy Crudden at Queens, um, she'll every now and then uh, text me or message me saying, all right, we got one of them, we got like, let's go. And uh, we'll get involved in a thread and we'll sort of tag team to try to, to take someone down who's being super obnoxious about things. Um, because we know that we can do that and a lot of people cannot. Um, but, and every now and then I think mm, maybe I've gone too far some person who's in a position of vulnerability gets in touch with me and says, thank you so much. That that was so meaningful to me. And most of the people who do that I've never met before. Um, and that is a, a benefit of, of social media and, and having you know, broad interactions. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. Um, just another quick question. Do you think EDI related work in general is valued in our community? As a graduate student, do you think it's worth pursuing? at the expense of being productive in lab or research? Or like, do you have any advice on how to balance both of these aspects? I think a lot of people who've never had to think about EDI are a little bit stunned now at some of their grant rejections because there is, a whether they want to or not, there is a part where if you don't meet a certain um threshold with respect to what is your training program? Do you incorporate EDI? Are you thinking about accessibility and inclusion um, that you, they're not even going to evaluate a grant. Um, and so whether, whether people want to or not society, or at least it, it and it's, it comes from both directions. It would never have come top down. It had to come grassroots and then, through a lot of people's just constant lobbying. They'll take Melinda Smith, she used to be at U of A, now she's here. Um, and just being very vocal to funding agencies and and um, and then developing the Dimensions program, Percy Duncan getting the Dimensions program started which was uh, based on Athena Swan in the UK. And so having things top down and bottom up I think it's moved the needle more than I've expected to see within the past, I'd say three to five years. And I think it's going to continue. So I think if um, people are not going to be hired on the basis of the number of papers they have, but if they actually have a meaningful inclusivity statement where it's heartfelt and it's clear that that they've educated themselves and that they can think very broadly and work with Science is international and it, it, it involves people from of every gender, of, of every, of, with disabilities, with um, about half of which are invisible. Um, you know, we talked about mental health, that's often an invisible one, but plenty of others. Um, and, and if you can't do that, you will not get the same job opportunities. Um, and so I, I think it's absolutely crucial. And there's an expectation that EDI is developed into everything. Um, so we're learning 
Um, so now we have in the department an associate head um, of EDI and uh, in a department meeting, she was talking about how do you make presentations and, and classroom um, documentation more accessible and understanding how people see color differently and um, what, what actually is dyslexia? How are people actually, uh, if you have things um, written in a particular way um, and there's a, really good reception for that, certainly amongst uh, faculty. And the, the work that um, your group does is absolutely crucial. So um, whereas I think even five, 10 years ago, there would be pushback from supervisors of, no, you can't prioritize that. It's part of your professional development. It's only your personal development, your own leadership. Um, so I, I say prioritize it. And I think it's gonna make you better researchers. Hmm. Yeah, it's good to hear from you. Um, I think, well, I think uh, all of us have different supervisors, but I could think of some, like at my annual meeting, I talked about my EDI work and I got blank expressions, but I'm still proud of myself. You yeah, most certainly should be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd like to bring Juan back into the conversation. So, you know, having a, a supervisor that's really into EDI and making a change and being supportive has that inspired you yourself to maybe propagate that somehow in your future career? I, I do think so. I do think so. I remember uh, one conversation when we had like going from one place to another. I think that we were going like to a departmental presentation or something and which um, I asked her about her being the, an advisor to the provost. Um, and if she finds that rewarding, because I, I know like how hard it is to be part of the leadership in a university and how many like walls can you, how many barriers can you face when you're trying to make a change? Uh, I know she said like uh, it certainly was demanding, but um, she was able to influence policy. And then I was thinking, well, she's working from one side of the spectrum in which, as she said, she has a certain privilege, a certain point in her career. But I think that we can do more from our place. And um, so I, I remember when I actually asked my supervisor, I was talking like, well, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm gay. And I, I do like, like to have the opportunity to um, work in terms of inclusivity in science. And she pointed out to some resources that I actually use. So I, for example, participated in several um, activities with Let's Talk Science for Pride. Um, it's, it's really encouraging to see like somebody that openly supports and cares about EDI and try to incorporate these policies in her own group and in her own leadership position. So that certainly influenced me. And I have to say that when I had an internship in industry, which was um, an eight-month internship in a pharmaceutical industry, I also realized that um, industry is also valuing EDI way more than academia is doing right now in general terms. And I think, I, I don't want to be cynical, but I think that industry has to answer in a way more direct to the public. Uh, they don't have what we call academic freedom. They have to answer to the stakeholders. They have to answer to the public. They have HR departments that are really strong. So not only they do it like for because they think it's better, but also because there are financial repercussions of that. But also with the conversations that I have at this company, which is um, Chinook Therapeutics in Vancouver, they told me that they understand like 
if you don't have an environment that is accepting of all the people that is there, you will have a loss in productivity, just plain and simple. You will not achieve as much as you could achieve. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that I have been encouraged for both my, from both my supervisor and from my short industry um, experience to actually pursue EDI uh, because it is what I sh we, we all should do. And also because in, in some ways it's rewarding to feel like you are actually doing your own contribution to something. So just real quickly, there's Google years ago um, had looked into to this about what makes the best teams. And they found that teams where there were no stupid questions, you could ask anything and people didn't ridicule you. So what they described as psychological security, those were the most productive, most effective teams. Doesn't seem like they learned from their own study, mm. <laughs> um, which is a bit disappointing, but, uh, but I, I think that is really key. And something, and, and anytime, and it happens in, in our group, um, where people don't adhere to that, they try to put somebody down for asking a question, um, it, it holds everybody back and it, it lowers productivity. It means you're less likely to ask the next question, which again, it could be a huge safety issue. And a story from when I was a postdoc, I was using a um, Fisher Porter bottle, which is basically a bomb, so high pressure apparatus. I'd never done anything like that before. And I thought, I don't want to blow myself up. And this was, you know, you could Google it, but you weren't going to find anything mm -hmm. back then. And I'm not sure I would trust, you know, a YouTube video of how to use a Fisher Porter bottle unless I knew who the source was. So I asked a grad student in the group um, who was an excellent, still is excellent uh, chemist. And she helped me. And I, so first I watched her and then I had her watch me. And then I had her watch me again just to make sure that I wasn't going to blow up the lab. Um, and there was another post, and, and it worked, and the, the reaction worked. Um, and there was a, another postdoc in the lab who said, Jen, you just asked a grad student for help. You're a postdoc. You're supposed to be more knowledgeable. Said, well, I joined this group because I'm learning things that I didn't learn in my grad studies. That was sort of the point. Well, that postdoc who ridiculed me had um, twice <laughs> set up a freeze pump thaw of, of benzene with sodium in an ice bath and benzene expands when it freezes and it cracked the flask. Sodium goes into the ice bath, fire ensues. That person walked away and went to lunch. So other people had to put out the fire and that happened twice. So maybe that person should have asked uh, for help. And the name of the grad student who helped me is Melanie Sanford, who you might know as a very, very famous uh, and very successful um, academic researcher at the University of Michigan yes. and a Jacks editor. I, I wish in academia, everything could be like, you know, I feel like people, it would be so nice if people just stop being so judgmental. I feel like the my thought process is not the same as 90% or 60% of people. I just like, I wish the world was, you know, a safer place for everyone, mm -hmm. you know, I, especially in academia, right? Research, you don't want to do anything stupid, especially with chemicals. You can literally die, right? Absolutely. And so, you're, if you're saying your thought process is different, that's a strength, right? Mm -hmm. 
because you're going to think about things in a very different way from other people. And um, he who, who shall not be named, who's an emeritus professor at University of Toronto, would talk about how people's lived experience and, and if they're um, a so-called visible minority, old-fashioned phrase, um, uh, that, oh, you know, your, your lived experience doesn't influence how you think about things. Yes, it does. And it's absurd to say that it doesn't or think that it doesn't. And I think the strength of science is that when you have people come from the widest possible backgrounds with really wide, different experiences, people look at the same problem differently. And that's how you get things solved. And that's how you bring different perspectives to the same problem. Um, yeah, it's, it's really shocking to me if people are not comfortable with that. Mm. I echo your thoughts a lot, like for someone who's international and has a lot of diverse background, like I've moved like, I've changed 14 places in my life till now. So I've met so many people, right? And I, and somehow their thought process or, or their, the conversation that I have with them, they somehow reflect in my research, you know? I, mm-hmm. I think about a problem in a different way and I don't think someone who's sitting right next to me, right, would think in that way. Mm-hmm. They will have their own experience. So, so having diverse experience can can be tremendous. Can be of like huge strength to you in absolutely, in the long run. absolutely. And yeah. I think that's where um, the and, and this, you see this in the classroom when you do team based learning yeah. um, that you try to, to establish teams not of groups of friends but of groups of people who aren't friends because learning from one another and and people's different experiences. And a friend of mine at uh, UBC who is the associate dean, um, I'm not sure what it was called, but it is effectively an EDI role in the faculty of science, Nainan Abraham is his name, he's an immunologist, microbiologist. Um, And he invited me to help facilitate a couple workshops. And so a really interesting book called um, The Ethical Gray Zone. So you get diverse groups of of people. Um, In this case, the two that I was involved in were groups of students. It doesn't have to be. And you give each table gets probably seven to 10 scenarios. And what tends to happen is that, and you're supposed to say, which is, is it, okay, they're all bad, but is this one, eh, okay, you could deal with it to, holy crap, that's just so stark. And the ones that are most interesting are the ones where people disagree. And that's where you find out people's different privilege. <laughs> and so the, the, the work that the tables do is to try to have open conversations of why people either thought that this was a problem or wasn't a problem. And something for in a lot of international students, a question of where are you from? there are only so many times you can take that before you want to Mm -hmm. scream. And somebody who was born in Calgary, you know, would look at not out of place riding a horse with a cowboy hat here. um, They're never going to get that. Mm -hmm. And even I get it because every now and then someone hears this twinge of a U.S. accent. um, And even for me as a straight white woman, I, 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 it bugs me. And so it, 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 trying to get people to recognize, and when I've talked to people about that, they're like, oh, I was just making conversation with that person. Try a different tactic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
One last question, I guess. So, Dr. Lau, it's so inspiring to listen, like hear how you do the, all the EDI and what you're interested about EDI. So, what you want to do in uh, regarding the EDI in our department and how you want, if you turn back after five years, how you want our department to be on regard of EDI? What's your, what are your wishes? In, in my ideal world, we wouldn't have an associate had EDI anymore because our work would be done and, and <laughs> Belinda's work would be done. Um, I, I doubt we'll be there. But I do think that having people really reflect on on their teaching materials, how they interact with students, um, that when you go to an event, and I was talking to a colleague the other day about this, um, that he had been to a conference and um, and it's like, this table's full, this table's full, this table's full, this table has two people at it. White people, white people, white people, two people from Asia. Mm. And he said mm. it was so disappointing that everybody's gone through this and yet people still kind of congregate and trying to break that mold, having people understand that they'll get more out of the conversation. Like, oh, and you were saying with people from very different backgrounds and that's more fun than just chilling with your friends. You're going to learn more from different people than you are just from the same people. So really trying to, to, to break that um, people's comfort zones and recognize that it's good to, be uncomfortable <laughs> in a safe zone in a safe space yes right? that's, that's, that's right critical. that's that's the key i guess <clears throat> absolutely where you can trust people right that you know yes but this is it you know you can be who you are yes you exactly judging, and know? this is one of the things that i find frustrating being more than frustrating terrifying being from the u.s is you feel yeah. like there's all been all this progress all this progress and there's so many regressive things happening and and, and there, it's a strategy. It's like, hey, let's just go after trans people, some of the, especially trans people of color, some of the most marginalized people in our society. And they're just on the attack because, and it, they're just othering them. And it's so horrifying to see how that gets traction and plays on people's fears. Um, it's toxic, right? And so I, I really hope that we, we're always going to have that those steps backwards but i think on the whole i'm hopeful that we can keep moving forward i just think about like this as going back to what whatever jennifer says that this like a constant progress in terms of edi that sometimes like you go back and you have like regression in some specific cases uh when she was appointed of the head of the department of chemistry and we were discussing about it like she said something like i'm happy to see more women in leadership roles but uh most of these leadership roles are still occupied for by white women. Yeah. And what you're saying to her, something like, well, it's a step by step. Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Like uh, these things will take decades to change. And we are putting the work. She's putting the work. You guys are doing a phenomenal work with this podcast. So we will eventually get there, I think. That's a good way to end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Baby steps, right? Yeah, but yeah. why does it have to take a decade? Yeah. <laughs> At least it's happening. It's how it's yeah, happen, and, and everyone, know? I guess the, the thing that I would say is that everyone has to step back from that, that you can't always be the one doing it. And when you get to a point where you're exhausted, you have to be able to pass the baton on to someone else who can then take things over. And um, 
Yeah, I think everybody needs a break from time to time. Oh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, well, thank you so much you. for giving us your precious time and sharing your insightful stories with us. I'm pretty sure our audience will thoroughly enjoy. Great. Well, thanks very much. I really appreciate all of the work you do. You're some of the best student leaders in the department. And so that's really fantastic. Yeah. And thanks to Juan for joining us. Yep. And I hope you really are feeling better. And at least for me last week, I started feeling better. And that was like, two. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for having me. It was very fun. Bye. Thanks. Bye. 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 The UC Side Podcast is created and hosted by myself, Anna Nijvietska, Milanpreet Kaur, Laura Rios, and Thelina Jayawardana at the University of Calgary in Alberta. Our theme song is called Better Than Chocolate by the Driftwood Mob Orchestra. For more information about us, you can visit us at our website, ucalgaryside, in one word, dot O-R-G, or you can follow us on Twitter at ucalgary underscore side. And if this episode has inspired you to give us any comments or if you have any ideas for future episodes or just want to say hello you can always reach us via email which is provided in the bio and we're looking forward to hearing from you <laughs>